Hier komen we in vreemd. Rose Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Red Flag Radio is a revolutionary socialist podcast and we're living in pretty extraordinary times and we're hoping to try to get out two episodes a week at the moment, which we have been since this crisis began, and we can do those better <laughs> if you support us financially, and you can do that through patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. Sometimes I say that wrong, but it is red flag radio podcast on Patreon. And thank you to all of our supporters so far. It's been really um, fantastic for us to see some new people jumping on board and supporting us. That is fantastic. Um, and we're talking about economics today and money and what the hell is going on in the world. And we have a special guest joining us to do that. And our guest today, me and Liam Ward, who produces the show, is um, Rick Kuhn. Rick is a Marxist economist, a political analyst, and an honorary associate professor at the Australian National University. He's written a biography of the Marxist economist Henry Grossman, for which he won the Deutsche Memorial Prize. And he's written a bunch of other stuff that you can check out um, on Red Flag Books, uh, which is our new store, and also on Red Flag Newspaper, and he's been published in all sorts of places. If you look up Rick Kuhn, Socialist Online, you'll find a bunch of stuff. So he's a person who knows what he's talking about in terms of the economy. Um, we're recording this on the afternoon of Sunday, the 29th of March, and I've been saying that in the introduction to all of these shows because things are changing at a rapid rate around us politically, economically, um, in terms of industrial organising and so on. So if things have changed um, by the time you listen to it, they probably have, but this is where we're recording now and um, this is where we are at this moment in time on the 29th of March. So I wanted to make sure that this podcast on economics, I know people can find economics intimidating or feel like they don't know enough or don't know where to begin. I want to make sure that as we go through this, um, we're doing it in a way that hopefully people can follow as we go along because it is a really important thing to for all of us to get our heads around as socialists, as left-wing activists. Um, so we're talking about the implications of the COVID-19 uh, health crisis on the economy and those implications are massive. Um, but I wanted to just start, Rick, by kind of introducing this whole concept of the economy. And people are talking about, and politicians are talking about, you know, we need to save the economy. We, this is a package that's about helping the economy to recover. When people talk about the economy, Rick, what kind of things are they talking about? Because it's a very nebulous term. Well, really, at the very bottom, what they're talking about is profits because that's what capitalist economies are all about. They're about making profits in order to invest, in order to make more profits, in order to invest, and so on ad infinitum. That is, capitalism is about competitive accumulation of capital. That is, reinvestment of profits. That's what they, that is, mainstream economists and politicians mean when they talk about the economy. They mean the capitalist system of production and when they talk about saving the economy what they're talking about is making sure the profits are still made and where do profits come from well the only source of new value is human labor and capitalism revolves around the employment of human labor we all sell well these workers we sell our ability to work for a wage and we create more value than we consume in terms of the value of the food, clothing, shelter and so on that we eat, wear and live under. And who gets that additional value, that surplus value? Well, bosses get it. And that's the driving force of capitalism. 
making that surplus value, exploiting workers in order to make profits. And in the current situation, what governments are incredibly fearful of is large swathes of the economy, that is, mainly large corporations going under, not making profits, going out of business, and therefore uh, leading to a very, very deep price economic crisis. Now, there is only a limited amount that they can do to prevent businesses stopping work, stopping their activity at the moment, because it's not simply an economic crisis. Like the global financial crisis uh, of 2007-2008 that lingered on for a while, that was essentially just an economic crisis. What we've got at the moment is a profound biological crisis, a health crisis, which has been the trigger for an economic crisis that has been brewing for some time. And that health crisis means that the number of people who are actually at work creating profits for bosses has been diminished radically. And there is not much that can be done to prevent that. Uh, efforts can be made to minimise it. You can live in fantasy land on planet La La, like Donald Trump in particular, but also uh, Scummo in Australia, and think, well, we'll keep things going for as long as possible. We'll take it to the brink before we shut down just about everything to prevent this plague from spreading. Uh, and that way we'll sustain profit making. Or like Trump, you can say, well, things will be back, back up again by Easter. What this really means is that more workers are going to get sick. More people in general, including workers, are going to die. And uh, the economic problems are going to get even worse. Mm. And that's the gamble, I think, that or the um, deliberate uh, lack of concern over human health and human life that shows up more clearly than ever in this moment because it's a really direct choice basically between do we let more people die or do we um, stop people from working in unsafe conditions, do we care about people's health and therefore the economy will it, it definitively crash or do we keep people at work or say that they're going to have to go back to work before it's safe to do so to save the economy? So it really does put in that stark contrast. That's always been visible from a Marxist perspective that the economy relies on churning through human beings as labourers, ex exploitation, all of those things, um, and that you know a capitalist economic system and human health and human life are actually incompatible, and now we can see that in a really open way. And the what, other thing what, what that we I can think see is the, the alternative between the barbarism of capitalism and the prospect of socialism. I mean, it, we are posed in a very, very stark way with the alternative of socialism or barbarism, and we have the barbarism. Now, here in Italian hospitals where older people and people with pre-existing medical conditions are being triaged to death. They are being denied the kind of medical support that they need. That is barbarism on a level that is comparable with the barbarism of war. Yeah. And so... Looking at the scale of this, you mentioned the 2008 uh, economic crisis and people have been talking about the Great Depression of the 1930s as a comparison. And now some commentators are saying basically this is the biggest economic crisis in the whole history of capitalism. What's your kind of um, take on the historical comparisons and whether there are any at this point? Well, we don't have direct economic comparisons, or perhaps we do have one, and that's a long, long time ago. 
That's uh, in 1847, when there was a terrible disease that afflicted not human beings, but potatoes. But the bulk of the population of Ireland was dependent on potatoes. There was a monoculture. The, the Irish peasantry, who were hyper-exploited, extremely poor, lived on the cheapest crop that was available, which was spuds. And uh, the potato blight devastated the potato harvest for a couple of years in Ireland. And what you saw was the population of Ireland declining by a third. Mass deaths. And this came, uh, started just before a Europe-wide economic downturn, a Europe-wide economic downturn, which was in a way the first major global capitalist crisis, but was also precipitated by uh, problems with other kinds of crops as well. And we saw huge numbers of people die then in one part of the world. What we're seeing now is the entire planet being faced with a similar kind of a disaster. Now, in terms of quantifying the economic downturn, how far gross domestic product, which is the most important measure of an economy's activity, how far down gross domestic product will fall, well, I don't know. I think that we can be extremely confident, not cheerfully confident, but we can be extremely confident that things will be worse than the, the global financial crisis uh, of the 2000s. It's hard to tell whether things will be worse than the depression uh, of the 1930s. I also think that it's worthwhile making a comparison not only with those economic crises, but also with war. If you kept your job in the Great Depression or even throughout the, the 2000s, you weren't in a disastrous kind of a situation. Life wasn't turned on its head. Things did not change radically. That did happen in the First and the Second World War and not only countries where the front lines were. It was also in countries uh, that were not battlefields, but were participating in the war. So I think that there are some similarities between what we're going through now and previous economic downturns. There are also similarities with war. And mainstream economists and also politicians in a very big way are very keen on this comparison with war because they argue that we're all in it together. We have a common enemy and they play up nationalism. But just as the First and the Second World War were not a case of everybody being in it together, but rather were a case of, were, were cases of inter-imperialist rivalry where workers of different countries were sent off to kill each other by and large, the people at the top of society, the wealthiest, the most politically powerful, they didn't suffer in the same sort of way. Well, in this crisis, class differences are very, very evident indeed. People like Peter Dutton, when they get uh, COVID-19, can be very, very confident that they will get the best medical care available. Things are even starker in the United States where you have uh, an almost totally private health system. If you're poor, then your prospects of surviving are significantly less. If you're poor, if you're a worker, then Scummo tells us we've got to go to work. Every job is essential. Now, I think that there will be much wider spread closures of businesses uh, than there have been so far. But an earlier 
earlier action to shut down everything except those um, activities that are absolutely essential to survival, that would have slowed down the spread of the disease and therefore reduced the peak burden on our health facilities. But no, working people have to go to work according to Morrison and for that matter, according to uh, sections of the trade union movement and the Labor Party. And this singing to the same song sheet, this singing in harmony uh, is derives from the comparison with war and means that in Australia today there might be occasional little squabbles about policies to deal with the uh, corona crisis, the COVID-19 crisis, uh, which includes squabbles between the Premier of New South Wales, a Liberal hack, uh, and the Prime Minister, another Liberal hack, over details. Mm. But the Labor Party is going along with what the government's policies are and is not prepared to put the boot in to take a stand that puts people's health first before profits. Our cameras across the world. So going back to the 2008 comparison and the GFC, one of the things that people have been talking about with this crisis, the economic aspect of this crisis, is that what we've seen and what we're seeing is the bottom has basically fallen out of a massive chunk of the productive section of the economy rather than the finance section. So as Marxists, when we talk about productive labour and unproductive labour and what it means to be the productive part of the economy, we're talking about activities that create surplus value. And in in the finance sector, that doesn't actually happen. It's just all this kind of fictitious moving of money around and numbers on screens and so on. So what is the implications of that in terms of that kind of the crisis at the heart of the productive sector of the economy? Well, the stock market has crashed and that is a kind of an indicator that things are amiss. But it's not the cause. It's an effect. It's an effect of precisely what you were talking about, Roz, and that is uh, that the productive part of the economy is shrinking rapidly, both because of the health crisis and also because business, corporations in particular, are not prepared to invest in this kind of an economic and social crisis. They don't know if they're going to be able to make profits out of their investment. They don't know what's going to happen next. So there's a double whammy going on. There's the direct consequence of people not going to work because of the health crisis and then triggered by that, but already in uh, process well beforehand, there is an econ- a, a strictly economic slowdown going on. Profits were already turning downwards and economic growth were turning downwards on a global scale last year. There hadn't been a, a, an economic crash. There hadn't been a, a recession since, uh, well, in Australia for a long time. Uh, and a recession technically is defined as two quarters of decline in gross domestic product. But the global economies and particularly the driving forces of the global economy, the United States first amongst them, but also China and uh, the European Union at its core, Germany, uh, have been slowing down. Japan had been stagnant for a considerable period of time. Now what has happened is that the recession has been triggered by this external circumstance, a recession that was likely to have occurred relatively soon in any case. So as Marxists, we don't regard activities 
even if a considerable amount of labour goes into them, we don't regard activities that do not produce useful things to be productive. The finance sector is certainly crucial for capitalism in the terms of the distribution of financial resources, uh, but it actually doesn't produce stuff that human beings find useful. It doesn't produce real commodities. And the growth of the financial sector and the stock market boom of the period since the glo global financial crisis, a stock market boom which saw the Dow Jones index, which is the main index for US stocks, go up by something like 330%. That was driven by the fact that profits had not did not significantly recover after the global financial crisis. What that meant was that capitalists in the productive sector, and for that matter, those who offer credit, banks and other financial institutions, didn't think that it was especially worthwhile in investing in the production of useful stuff. Rather, they thought that it was more worthwhile to engage in speculative activity, to put money into the stock exchange, to put money into all sorts of arcane financial instruments, uh, betting that the price of those stocks would go up, that it would be possible to make money out of uh, collateralised loan obligations, something that I learned about fairly recently. In the global financial crisis, uh, we heard about collateralised debt obligations, which was basically the way in which uh, the responsibility for, mortgage, for, for mortgages, the credit, the, those who had, had lent the money that went on to people on mortgages, those debt obligations which were initially made mainly by banks, were diced up and put together and then sold as a financial instrument which would earn interest as people paid the interest on their mortgages. Uh, and it was thought, well, this is going to be okay because even if people default on their mortgages, uh, the financial institutions, the owners of these collateralised debt obligations will get to own all them houses. But the problem was that the price of houses does not rise forever. Uh, and the price of houses fell. Now there are collateralised loan obligations, which are loans to dubious corporations uh, kept afloat by significant amounts of borrowing at fairly low rates of interest. And interest rates have been kept low by, by the activities of central banks, essentially since the global financial crisis. The Federal Reserve, which is the central bank in the United States, tried to raise interest rates a little bit uh, and got a scare when... Uh, stock markets started, the, the US stock market started falling in December last year and they pushed down interest rates again through their activities. These, collateral, these collateralised loan obligations mean that the credit system is really under threat and that means that corporations that owe money may not pay the money back. It means that financial institutions are going to be more reluctant to lend to productive enterprises. It means that those who might borrow are going to be reluctant to invest in greater capacity. So the main response of central banks to the current crisis has been to reduce interest rates uh, through its 
they are open market operations through their buying and selling of uh, bonds in particular. But it's difficult to press interest rates any lower than they have been recently because they are extremely low. And in some places, they have been negative. And what that means is that people uh, pay to have their money in a bank. And that's been the yeah. case uh, in Europe for some time. And the other thing that central banks have been doing, some of them for longer, uh, others for a shorter period of time, the Australian uh, Reserve Bank has only just started doing this, is called quantitative easing, which is really creative, creating money by giving money uh, to uh, those who want to sell government bonds and even private bonds, uh, and in the hope that this will encourage greater spending. Uh, it's a means of keeping interest rates down. It's a means of making more money available. But will that money be spent on productive activity? And in any case, productive activity is declining because of the health crisis, because people, fewer people are at work. So we initially heard about governments making efforts to save the economy, to prevent a recession. We're not hearing that anymore. What we're hearing now is we've got to make sure that uh, businesses can survive to the other side. Uh, and the idea is that there is some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. If businesses are bailed out by governments giving them vast amounts of money, and we just heard um, the last few days about the three-point-something trillion US dollar... No, sorry, it's in Australian dollars at three-point-something trillion dollar bailout package in the United States, a very large proportion of which will go to corporations. Some of it does go... Uh, to bolster individual people's incomes, but a very large chunk of it goes to corporations. And the idea is governments will bail out corporations so that they don't fail in the current circumstances and will still be around uh, when the current crisis is over. The problem is that we are going to be made to pay for these bailouts because governments are going into debt themselves that debt has to be serviced, some interest has to be paid, uh, the principal has to be repaid. So this increased government indebtedness will ultimately lead to new calls for austerity on the part of business uh, and politicians. It will lead to yep. circumstances that have been the background to the current economic crisis. And the other central part in terms of a Marxist economic perspective is that bosses can only actually make profits through the exploitation of workers. So if, if businesses are bailed out by governments and to a level that they survive, you know, to some future point where people can actually go back to work, then their quickest route to... Um, regain profitability is to exploit workers as hard as they can. So to make workers work harder, to pay them as little as possible, you know, to increase productivity as they sort of call it in a um, mainstream way, basically means how, how can we get workers to work as hard as possible for as little money? And that's how we um, regain profitability as a business. So, Looking at all of this, and I would recommend for people um, trying to get their head around the global financial crisis in 2008 and the mortgage lending and all of that, actually The Big Short is a movie that explains a lot of um, what went on economically then and the absolute sort of fucked up um, deals that people did on people, you know, when underneath it all there's people's lives and there's people being... Um, kicked out of their houses because they can't make their repayments because um, they could never afford to in the first place and all of that. So 
you know, even in a fictional, in a sector of the economy that is built around sort of fictitious kind of capital and not actually productive labour, there's still human beings who um, are at the bottom of it being crushed by that whole process, which I think is worth remembering. And then the other thing, just on on the government response, I think that's important uh, to point out is the fact that it's incredible now, not just internationally but in Australia, that this Liberal government who told us all time and time again there is no money in the system, there is nothing to increase new start, there is no way of doing any of these things because we're going to get back to a balanced budget, exactly, are now able to find billions of dollars within hours to give to businesses to keep businesses afloat with no strings attached, billions of dollars. Um, So that's happening. But does anyone really, Rick, have a clue in terms of bourgeois economists, governments, advisors, you know, central bank bankers, do they do they do you think any of them do have a clue about how actually to um, mitigate this crisis or the idea of a recovery out of it um, at all? Is there a plan? Could there be a plan? Well. I think the the plan the plan is class warfare from above, essentially, uh, and in the very short term, from income transfers to uh, people who are unemployed, so that they can continue to buy stuff, so that those sectors of the economy that produce uh, consumer goods don't immediately collapse, but. In the longer term, the the strategy is class warfare. Uh, try and keep uh, businesses operating bit by big subsidies in the here and now through uh, the operations of central banks uh, and also through fiscal policy, that is taxing and spending, reduce taxes on business and throw more money their way. But uh, there is a an attitude which is articulated particularly by um, by some journalists uh, and some academics that all of this is a big opportunity. It's an opportunity because, well, as Uh, Tom Switzer, who is uh, a right-wing commentator who works at Sydney University and is also employed uh, as a counterbalance uh, to uh, Philip Adams by the ABC because Philip Adams, a small-l liberal, is far too left-wing to leave unbalanced. Tom Switzer has said, never let a serious crisis go to waste. What I mean by that is it's an opportunity to do things you couldn't do before. And he was quoting somebody else then. He was quoting Rahm Emanuel, President Obama's chief of staff and later the viciously neoliberal Democratic Party mayor of Chicago. And what Switzer wants to happen, and I quote again, is lower taxes slash excessive regulatory red tape, reduce adversarial workplace regulation, loosen infrastructure bottlenecks, teach children basic skills essential for higher learning, fix the state-based payroll tax duties and stamp duties on property, and for a trial period, end our compulsory uh, retirement savings system. So what does that mean? Lower taxes, lower taxes on corporations and the rich. Flash excessive regulatory red tape that can be paraphrased in technical terms. Fuck the environment. Fuck guarantees that workers will actually get their entitlement. Uh, Reduce adversarial workplace regulation. Well, that's, does that need explanation? It means... Smash the unions. Mm. Smash smash the unions. uh, Fine any workers who stand up to their bosses 
uh, if necessary, send union officials and rank-and-file workers to jail uh, if uh, they engage in adversarial behaviour. In other words, mm. if they disagree with the boss or try and stop the boss doing the kinds of outrageous things that bosses necessarily have to do in this competitive system. Loosen infrastructure bottlenecks. Uh, the government should provide facilities in ports, rail, road and so on cheaply for business. Teach children basic skills, back to reading, writing and arithmetic and along with that uh, NAPLAN type testing, uh, the idea that kids uh, should be encouraged to explore the world, to understand the world in order to criticise it, let alone change it. Yeah, that, that's all put to one side. Fix the state-based payroll taxes and stamp duties on property. Well, that's more cutting taxes on the well-off. Uh, the final thing, though, uh, ending the compulsory retirement savings system, this is the only one that doesn't involve uh, attacking, attacking workers, but only on one proviso, only if it is matched by a massive boost in the level of the age pension and a massive expansion of access to the age pension, which I suspect which little Tommy doesn't mean. have in mind. Mm. Yeah. And even the idea as a temporary solution to get workers to take their money out of their superannuation is another way that's just making workers pay for the crisis themselves. Um, yeah, that's right. It's, it's a substitute for the government... Um, paying a reasonable level of um, New Start, or it's now called Job Search, isn't it? It's a substitute for government expenditure to sustain people. Uh, mm. It's taking away something that was already a deduction from wages. I mean, that's how the superannuation system was introduced. Uh, and taking that away again. Mm. Uh, and... You know, we, we, in terms of what needs to be done, well, the Lieutenant Governor of uh, Texas, a guy called Dan Patrick, who's turning 70 this week, I'm not going to wish him happy birthday, he has said hundreds of older constituents have told him they would rather gamble with death mm. than see the economy ruined by the coronavirus lockdown. As a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. I've talked to hundreds of people, Tucker, and just in the last week, and uh, making calls all the time, and, and everyone says pretty much the same thing. Now, old Dan uh, is safe enough because if he comes down with COVID-19, he will have the resources to pay for the most expensive medical care in the United States' horrendously class-divided healthcare system. But, uh, yeah, let old people die. Mm. And yeah. a, a British journalist in the uh, Telegraph, which is appropriately known as the Tory-graph, uh, made a similar comment uh, that, you know, maybe it's not such a bad thing if the burden on the welfare state of all these old sick people is reduced by uh, them being cleared out by, the, um, by this health crisis. I take, being a boomer myself, I take this person. Mm. I'm sure many, many people do and many people listening do, like, that, again, is just the sort of sick, anti-human sentiments of people who are there on the front line defending capitalism and throwing whoever they want sort of basically, um, yeah, into well, the dustbin of history. It's not just on the it's, it, in this case, in this situation, into the grave. killing them. Yeah. 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 Like mass, Even, advocating mass murder is basically yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Even 
you know, there, there may well be a recovery. This may not be the, the terminal crisis of capital. There may well be a recovery. But to the extent that that recovery uh, is assisted by bailing out zombie firms through cheap credit and so on, it lays the basis for the next crisis. Capitalism is a system which periodically goes through economic crises precisely because the very impressive aspect of capitalism that over the period of a couple of hundred years under capitalism, human labour has become much, much more productive in producing and creating useful things because of competitive accumulation, because of reinvestment in profits in new technology that makes things more cheaply. And if bosses don't do that, then they are likely to go under in, uh, because they can't compete with their rivals who do invest. That in itself reduces profit rates. because so it's only human labour that creates new value. And what counts for employers, what, what counts for capitalists, is a comparison between their profits, the surplus value that they get to hold, and what they've outlaid. And the process of reinvestment in more and more expensive new technologies uh, and uh, devices and machinery and equipment, what that means is that the surplus value is compared with much, much bigger outlays on stuff that doesn't actually create new value, that is, on the machinery and equipment and the raw materials, as opposed to uh, the wages bill. So there is a tendency mm. for the rate of profit to fall under capital. Now, of course, there are offsetting mechanisms. Otherwise, capitalism would have gone under a long, long time ago. But this tendency periodically and necessarily reasserts itself as a fundamental characteristic of capitalism. And even without it being combined with a health crisis, an economic crisis is disastrous for vast numbers of people. In the Communist Manifesto, uh, Marx and Engels wrote about the way in which capitalism periodically leads to a situation where the masters have to feed the slaves in their slavery rather than the other way around. In other words, wage, wage slaves have to be sustained by some kinds of state action during economic crises because capitalism cannot sustain the human lives that make it go round, that create the profit. So what, um, and people also listening, I just thought I would remind you that we have an episode on some of the, an introduction to Marxist economics as well that you can listen to alongside this or after you've listened to this to go over some of the concepts that have been raised here. But when people are looking at this and socialists talking about um, the capitalist economy, I think a lot of people will be asking the question, what's the alternative? Would it not be better to try that governments did something to actually save this economic system so that people can go back to work, that they can recover something in their lives in the current system? Like what is the alternative to a capitalist economic system? The alternative is a system where ordinary people get to make the important decisions for society. And that can only happen through a thoroughgoing democracy. And those important decisions include decisions about what is produced and how it's produced. Most of us, for most of our lives, live, well, at least the best waking moments of our lives, live in dictatorships. They're known as workplaces. They're dictatorships because your boss, your supervisor, the board of directors, the CEO, 
they get to decide, they tell you what you have to do. There's no democracy in workplaces. What socialism is about is democracy from the very bottom, from workplaces to the very top of global society. And it's only in that way that production can be geared to human needs. It's only when humanity gets to make the decisions, that is, the vast majority of the population get to make the decisions about what is produced, what the priorities of production are, how things are produced. It's only then that their interests will be served. At the moment, those decisions are not made by humanity. Um, they're made by a tiny group of uh, people who look like humans but actually are personifications of capital in a human body. It's like uh, they're possessed by an alien form, except that it's an alien form generated by mm. the capitalist mode of production that means that if they want to survive as capitalists, they've got to be assholes. This idea of them being aliens is not... It's um, When you think about the absurd decisions that are being played out in relation to the pandemic, sometimes I see people's response to it, and it's almost like this confusion of like, how could anyone decide to do that? That's mad. You know, it's like they are this alien force. So, for example, I'm thinking of, um, you know, the news that broke in the last 24 hours in Australia about uh, possibly up to 100,000 nurses and medic other medical professionals being laid off in the, in the private hospital sector in the middle of a pandemic. You know, and most people look at that and think, yeah, it's fucking nuts. Like, are the people making these decisions aliens, you know? If you chase that, if you chase all of the decisions that are being made uh, about this pandemic, if you go right back through the through the chain of events, the the kind of crazy decisions that are being dictated by you know the interest of a of a handful of capitalists at the top didn't just start in December or January. They go all the way back. All of those decisions about uh, which uh, you know which which areas of government expenditure would be funded and which areas would be cut and so on are kind of driven by this same you know alien you know uh, decision making. But there was a, a piece I read in, in one of the newspapers right, right back at the start of the pandemic written by um, a scientist who was doing research into a vaccine for SARS uh, about 10 years ago. And he said, and he made the point that, well, SARS and this, this novel coronavirus are all in the same coronavirus family. And when we were doing this research 10 years ago, we were getting close to ha having some kind of uh, vaccine, or we thought we were getting close to having some kind of vaccine invented. And then the funding was pulled because all of the people who, all of the potential market for the SARS vaccine were dead. So the funding was pulled. You know, like these kind of mad decisions that are so obviously dictated by profit of a few uh, have shaped everything about this pandemic, even, you know, even in that period 10 years ago. Like all the way through, there's these decisions that are made that, we're, that, that kind of back us, into, back us further into a horrible kind of anti-human corner. I think that... And I think, the, I mean, the... That's definitely true. The other thing, when we've all been talking about flattening the curve and everyone's got on board that now, or pretty much took took people a while, Boris Johnson and so on, to get the idea that that was necessary. But even in that, the, to the, the flattened curve needs to be flattened because the line of health capacity in every single society around the world, where that line is, that you hit and then there's no more capacity in the healthcare system is so low and so shit in America, in Australia, in Britain, in the whole of Europe, everywhere around the world, because it's not a priority for capitalism to invest in healthcare. And even the billions of dollars now that the government are, are handing out, where are the billions of dollars to build hospitals, to build ventilators? And there are companies in the Australian Financial Review posting articles saying, we've said to the government, we can turn over our production to produce healthcare supplies, um, ventilators, we have 3D printers and we've seen people stopped from making um, things on 3D printers because of patent laws, anti-competition laws. Uh, um, so, you know, all the logic of the system means that 
thousands, millions of people will die as a result of decisions not just being made now, but as Liam said, that are decisions made by the people who run this barbaric system. So we're running out of time and um, uh, wanted to end with some recommendations if people are now listening to this thinking, I'd really want to learn a bit more about Marxist economics, particularly to understand this crisis and the things that will keep happening as it rolls on. Rick, do you have some recommendations for things um, that we can share in the show notes and people can uh, keep following themselves? Sure. Well, there's a, a pamphlet from 1986 by Pete Green called The Basic Concepts of Marxist Economics, which I think is still the best short introduction to Marxist uh, ways of understanding how economies actually operate. It's, it's very good indeed, and we can make that available free. Um, there's Michael Roberts's blog, The Next Recession, uh, thenextrecession.wordpress.com, which has uh, really valuable up-to-date, not only commentary, but also statistics uh, about what is going on in the world from a Marxist perspective. Um, you bracket aside his softness on China and the non-capitalist sectors of all economies, it, but overall, it's very good indeed. And then there's this publication that Liam and Roz, you may have heard of. It's called Red Flag, which does a oh, yeah. pretty good job uh, on a global standard of covering what is going on uh, in terms of class struggle uh, and uh, the the logic of the system. Yep. Um, excellent plug. And we're really hoping to build our subscriber base for Red Flag newspaper as well as the Patreons for Red Flag Radio, the podcast. So if you can subscribe to Red Flag at the moment, that would be um, a really fantastic way to support the efforts of socialists and people who are active in all different areas. And there are um, hundreds of us right now who are organising, trying to organise in workplaces, uh, amongst students, uh, and in all sorts of different ways to um, not only resist now, but to prepare our resistance for the future um, uh, as this crisis continues to unfold which it definitely will. And so thank you, Rick Kuhn, for being on Red Flag Radio. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. And uh, thanks, Liam, again, for your time and effort in producing the show. No worries. My name's Ros Ward. You're listening to Red Flag Radio, where we have a world to win. <laughs>